a gentleman's guide to midnight cinema with your host, Big Willie and the Samurai. Is that all right? I don't know. Should we try it again? Try a few different things? Let's see. Um, let's get ready to rumble. Is that copyrighted? I think that might be copyrighted. Let me try something different. <clears throat> hey, hey, hey. No, I know that's definitely copyrighted. That I can't use that one. That's, uh, you know what? Fuck it. They're not paying me for this shit. They'll get the first take and they'll be happy with it. Because F-13's time don't come cheap. And uh, Hey, have you been recording all... Oh, son of a bitch! Bringing class to the trash. Alright, so here we are. Episode 2. We made it. We made it to episode 2. That That's a pretty big deal for a brand new podcast, in my opinion. So, it's good to be back. Um, oh, most definitely it's go. good to be back. <laughs> We got some pretty good reactions uh, from the first episode, and you know we're very happy about that. And uh, thanks for everybody who uh, called in and uh, wrote in. We got uh, we got some feedback and everything else, and uh, we're very very happy about that as well. Uh, today we're going to go over uh, two films that are completely different. We're going to go over uh, 1980s Alligator with uh, Robert Forster, and we're going to go over uh, Kim Ji Woon's. A Bittersweet Life, and uh, you couldn't ask for two films to be more different than these two. And uh, let's see here, let me pull that intro music down, because... Uh, you been up to anything else, uh, Willie? You been up to anything? I've been dedicated to the show. Every waking moment has been the show, and ensuring we can get the second episode up a lot quicker than we did the first one. So, not a whole lot. Work, work, work. Um, House-related stuff. Nothing too exciting that... Our listeners, I'm sure, want to hear quite yet <laughs> until they uh, build up the love for us a little more. Yeah, yeah. That's something I've actually posted on the boards over at PopSyndicate.com and uh, the uh, OTC and the uh, Senate Diabolica boards is that uh, if you're going to send voicemails in, uh, which, uh, by the way, is uh, 206-666-5207, or emails at midnightcinema at gmail.com, uh, you're going to have to get them in before Tuesday mornings because currently we're recording on uh, Tuesday mornings because of uh, Willie and I's uh, very, 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 very busy uh, uh, work schedule. Uh, both of us work a lot of hours. And then to top it off, I decided to go back to school about six months ago. And uh, school has started for me again, so to top that off, I decided to, you know, well, you know, working 60 and 70 hours a week wasn't enough. I figured I'd go to school for another 20 or 30 a week. So, uh, good times. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, exactly. And, and and to top that off, I decided to have a baby. So <laughs> Yeah, there you go. Uh, the, the wife's nine months pregnant now, and she could um, potentially give birth at any time. So, yeah, that, that adds to my schedule significantly as well. So, yeah. See, that would be something no other podcast would have, a birthing on air. So, let's hope that doesn't happen. <laughs> Call it a hunch, I don't suspect my wife would be overly enamored with the prospect of me having the microphone near Chocha during the birth. It might take away from the tenderness of the moment a touch. That is true. That is true. Of course, these microphones are so sensitive, you could probably be in the other room and you would hear everything, so it wouldn't matter yeah, anyway. That's, that's true. I mean, I just kind of stick my arm out all the way and I could probably pick up everything. But then again, it might sound like Linda Blair and the Exorcist uh, while she's birthing. And I hope she doesn't hear this, and if she does, I'm probably going to get... A stern looker three, so. Oh, well, you, that, that happens, that happens. <laughs> I get stern looks all the time, so that's the, yeah. the joys of being married. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, comes with the territory. <laughs> so uh, we're going to pretty much, uh, that's pretty much for the introductions right now. We're going to pretty much go into the uh, first break, really, and just kind of break into Alligator. I do want to mention that we will, uh, in the future, be trying to get more 
more uh, listener interaction with the show, we're going to try something a little different. I'm just going to throw the tease out there right now, but we're going to try something a little different a couple episodes from now, or maybe, you know, sometime within the first 10 episodes, we'll announce it. Uh, and hopefully everybody will be a little excited about it. And uh, I don't really know if anybody else does it. I don't think anybody else does, but uh, we're going to hope that people will, uh, you know, get involved and, you know, interact more. We're just trying to get more people, more people involved, but and hopefully we'll get some message boards up pretty soon and, and things like that. And, uh, you know, create the community that uh, that's the best thing about podcasting is the community and stuff so i just want to drop that out there i'm not going to give away the details yet i'm just going to wait until uh we got it locked down but uh i think i think quite a few people will be quite excited about what we got coming yeah definitely and that's one of the big things um about some of the shows that we're both big fans of is the, the sense of community and the the interactivity to a degree um with them it's it's a nice thing to feel like you're part of it you know and it's something that you and i had both discussed uh we'd like to do and and, and soon enough this yeah this will come down the pipes but we don't want to look like we have uh, egg on our faces when things don't <laughs> quite come through the way we hope for them to. So once it's in the bag, we'll uh, be happy to reveal to you guys what it is. All right. So with that, we're going to go ahead and take our first break. And uh, guys, these breaks are short. I'm going to I'm going to apologize now for the breaks. Uh, I'm not as uh, adept at uh, creating breaks. I did a pretty good job in the first episode, but the second episode it got a little bit more complicated for me. I'm going to admit that. Uh, uh, so these breaks are. Uh, they're not my proudest moment, but they're pretty good, I think. I mean, they're all right. I mean, hell, I didn't know anything about podcasting uh, two months ago, so. So we're back. A uh, little Beastie Boy action there. A little tribute to, to Willie there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the Beastie Boys. <laughs> That's so some good stuff you. there from Paul's Boutique. Uh, probably my favorite Beastie Boy record, so good stuff. <laughs> we're showing our age when you say record. Ooh, yeah, I just, re- I just realized <laughs> that. Ooh. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I actually owned this on vinyl at one point. That's how old I am, guys. <laughs> All right, I'll cut that out there. All right, so are we ready to review a movie? Yes, sir. The gentlemen are ready. All right, uh, okay, our first film, guys, is Alligator from 1980, directed by Louis Teague, starring Robert Forster, and uh, uh, I think the lady's name is Robin Riker, and uh, the indomitable Henry Silva, which we'll talk about in a little while. Oh, we will. <laughs> uh, I'll give a basic plot synopsis. Uh, uh, the plot synopsis on IMDb is uh, a giant alligator is on the loose in Chicago. Chicago? Yep. Don't go down to the sewers. Uh, boy, that's an exploitation synopsis if I've ever heard one. Uh, that that <laughs> equals fail in my books. Yeah, yeah, that is, that is a pretty bad synopsis. But you know, alligator basically is uh, a tale of uh, you know the urban legend of flushing a pet alligator down the sewer and then the alligator uh, feeding off of whatever's down there and growing to you know full size or in this case 
uh, absurdly full size. But uh, let's see here. That's pretty much all I got for the basics and everything else. Uh, I guess I'll kick it over to you and let you uh, start out the review and let's see where we go with this. Okay. Um, yeah, this is one I hadn't seen in a very, very long time. I caught it on cable um, when I was a child. And, and I, so I, my recollection of it was a little foggy. So it was when you had said you wanted to cover it, I was happy to because I hadn't seen Forrester or anything since uh, Jackie Brown. So as far as the movie goes, um, for me, it really kind of had a creep show kind of vibe to it in a sense. I don't know if it's the era uh, in which the film was made in combination with the score. I'm not really sure what it was, but it kind of had that feel to it. It had a little bit of uh, a TV feel to it in a sense. I don't know why. I mean, maybe it was shot in full frame. Would you Would you know if that was the case? or? Uh, I don't know. Was it shot in full frame? It might have been shot in full frame, actually. Uh I don't know. It does have a TV feel to it with uh, some scenes of gore that seem to be just kind of thrown in for, you know, selling the movie. But, uh, yeah, you know, thinking about it now, what you just said, uh, maybe it was kind of uh, maybe shot for TV or shot with the intention of showing. I don't know. I mean, it does have a TV feel to it. I have to agree with that. Yeah, and I, it's kind of odd because even some of the, the the way it's edited, they kind of fade to black. It's almost like it was made for a commercial. So I was, I don't know, I was a little little surprised at that, I mean. But, you know, nonetheless, just an observation, more or less, as opposed to uh, the film itself. Um, right. For the most part, I did like this film. I thought, you know, it was a fun film. You and I had talked about this before the show, about how we were both kind of surprised looking back. It got an R rating. You know, there's some blood in it and whatnot, but, uh, and there's some, you know, some alligator chomping and so forth. But, I mean, <laughs> it's not something that I think nowadays would be rated R. I think it, it more would be a PG-13 kind of film, so I was kind of surprised that it had that R rating. Yeah, I know, except for maybe a couple of bloody stumps, uh, which is what they were. Really, uh, not really, uh, you know, a very overly graphic movie. Uh, and the and the and to be fair, the parts with uh, bloody stumps, and I'm not giving anything away, guys. This is about an alligator, so at some point you're going to see some bloody stumps. I guess they feel the parts with the the gore that is in there it feels kind of tacked on and stuff. Uh, it just feels like it done. And that might be go back to what you said about the TV. Maybe uh, it was shot originally for television, and maybe they thought, hey, you know what? You know, Jaws was big a few years back. Let's go ahead and, and uh, throw some gore in here and release this theatrically and everything else. And I think that might have been what happened. Uh, I know Louis Teague has shot stuff for TV before, so uh, that wouldn't be surprising. And uh, Forster wasn't exactly a superstar in 1980. I think he had come off of uh, some him and some uh, Fred Williamson movies and some uh, Bill Lustig films. Uh, so his yeah, star had shown, it had shown bright early, and then it faded really quickly and then it kind of came back. so Which is a shame, and, and I think we'll both kind of get to that a little bit later. But, yeah, in regards to the Jaws references, it, it, it clearly, I don't know if poke fun, pokes fun is the right term, but it, it sort of uh, satires that a little bit. You know, the music in certain parts, you know, you get the famous kind of legs in the water shot. So it was right. it was very aware of of what it was uh, coming on the, on the shoulders of. So that, I thought that was kind of... You know, they didn't, it, it was influenced by it, but it was aware it was, and it let you know it was aware it was, so that was kind of good they did that. It kind of got them some points for me for that. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not as much a satire on Jaws as, like, Piranha was. but No, no, no. But it definitely has a Jaws feel, uh, and some great point of view shots and stuff. When all else fails, you just turn to the point of view shot and stuff, but they're they're pretty fun. And, uh, yeah, you're right, I mean, it... I, I don't know if satire is the right word or if it's poking fun, but it definitely does have a little bit of a comedic feel to it. So Yeah, no, it, it, it does in parts. Yeah, satire probably wasn't or isn't uh, the accurate term for it. Um, you remember early on in the film, there's the store clerk, the, the scummy sort of dodgy <laughs> store clerk. Yeah, who, with, the, uh, with the Hawaiian shirt. Whenever you need a really sleazy guy, throw him in a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> yeah, have him balding in Hawaiian shirt and 
you know, it's like, it's like, you know, add water, instant seahorse, add Hawaiian <laughs> shirt, balding, instant scumbag. Yeah. What is up with you the know? Hawaiian shirts, man? I used to wear Hawaiian shirts and I, I think I quit wearing them because of all the scumbags I saw in movies with Hawaiian shirts. Oh, I know. <laughs> I know. But it, it, the funny thing about that guy, I, I looked him up because he looked really familiar to me. I, I thought I'd seen him in a few things before. Right. Um, and I looked at his, his uh, resume and I couldn't see anything. He looked like one of the patients from One Flew Over a Cuckoo's Nest or One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I know Danny DeVito was in that, but he looked like one of the other ones. And it's weird. I, I couldn't quite place him. He has one of those faces that uh, uh-huh. I, I recognize, but I wasn't quite sure where he was from. Right. Right. I'm trying to think. Uh, it seems like maybe he might have been at one point on a TV show called Alice, too. I don't know. He's, he's been in a lot of stuff. I know that. I don't know his name. I didn't write it down. But anybody that's seen the film, you'll know who we're talking about. He's been in a lot of material. He's basically oh. just a popular character actor from the late 70s, early uh early 80s oh yeah yeah and the next thing i want to talk about is is forrester a little bit not so much right now in terms of his performance but just how young he is in this Um, oh i know it (laughs) it's 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 bizarre to see him that young because the last thing i'd seen him in was jackie brown right so that's sort of the last image of him i have in my head he's a little older i mean he aged pretty well in his defense but it's funny to see him look as young as he is because jackie brown was i think about 16 or 17 years later Mm -hmm. than alligator so it was kind of funny to go back and see him sort of as a younger man again. Right, right. Yeah, that's the first thing I remember, too, when I watched it. Uh, I watched it a couple months ago, and then I rewatched it for the show here. And uh, the first thing that struck me was, wow, Robert Forster looks looks like a kid, even though he does have the thinning hair, which is an ongoing joke in the movie, and everything else. Uh, he does look quite young in this film. And uh, we can talk about Forster, man. I mean, he really, he really carries this whole movie and uh it's really really a shame that robert forster has never caught on with uh, the movie business like a lot of actors have i mean he has charisma he's got comic timing he uh can play the heavy he can play the hero he can do it all and yet he never really got much bigger than uh i think his first real big break was a film called medium cool and uh, which i don't i'll be honest with you i haven't seen but i've heard a lot of good things about it and uh, I saw Alligator, and I've seen Vigilante, and I've seen all these films he made in the 70s and stuff. But then he, he, he was working in the 80s, but he disappeared for a long time until he came back in the 90s with uh, Tarantino and uh, Jackie Brown, in which is a, a great performance and a, a movie that I think is highly underrated, uh, as I've told you before. Oh, and as I completely and utterly agree with you on Yeah, he, uh, he really has that magnetism in that film. You see it come back. It's just really a shame that, uh, again, now he's working and he just does little bit parts. He's always, you know, somebody's dad or somebody's uh, uh, boss or something like that, it seems. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it really is a shame uh, that he hasn't worked more. You know, that was the great thing. And you and I have said this many, many times. The great thing about the 70s is that looks didn't matter. Ken dolls weren't all the rage. Right. Um, you know, another guy we always talk about, and I don't want to get on too much of a tangent about this guy, but Ed Harris. He was born in the wrong decade, too. I mean, yeah. if he had been in his prime in the 70s, he could have been like a Gene Hackman type guy, you know, creating some legendary tough guy roles. But Forrester was so good in this film, and he does really carry the film. You know, with he's very likable, very charming. Um, he's believable with some of the more kind of running around physical stuff, too. And yeah, it is a shame that he never quite caught on the way he could or should have because, you know, he's he's clearly talented. I think in the hands of, of someone less talented than him, this film, to me, would have been um, a lot more boring or a lot less interesting because there were parts in this film I did find a little too slow for my liking. Right. Um, and thankfully, sort of his charm and his charisma kind of carried me through those spots because, he, I mean, he's featured in... in almost not not quite but almost every scene in the film so mm-hmm. you know if it wasn't for him with these slow spots I, I would have been 
a lot more um, not annoyed, but just I guess bored. And and he really did carry it in parts. Right, right. No, no. This movie is on his shoulders. There's no doubt about it. I mean, it's on his back, and he is carrying it. It's a B movie. I mean, that's what this is. This is a movie about a giant alligator. I mean, you really can't get much more B movie than that. And he really brings a, well, for lack of a better term, you know, one of the uh, gentlemen's term here. He uh, he brings class to this movie. And uh, you can't say that about a lot of B movies. A lot of B movies are, you know. Uh, kind of sludgy and sleazy and everything. but this film he really brings a sense of class to it and everything else and uh, this film is a lot deeper than uh, people give it credit for you know it's a lot about animal rights and it's a lot about uh, you know pollution and what we've done to you know our world and stuff and this is 1980 you know nowadays I think if this movie was made people would probably pay more attention to that but even in 19 well it was probably shot in 78 or 79 people were already seeing the effects of uh, uh, you know mankind's uh, polluting of uh, nature and things like that and and uh, it's it's got a little bit more meaning to it than just a, your standard B movie. So I think it's why it's held up pretty well. I mean, it, for a movie with a big fake animatronic alligator, uh, it holds up really well, in my opinion. Oh no, it it does. I mean, it's a sign of its times aesthetically, but in terms of the themes, like you said, the animal rights stuff, and they don't bang you over the head with it, but they do touch on it. They talk about you know uh, modifying animals to you know make them a lot larger because of. Uh, droughts and famine around the world and stuff and pollution. Right. Yeah, these are issues that are so topical nowadays that, yeah, it does hold up well in terms of that. And, you know, it was uh, interesting to see them touching on that, especially a B-movie at that time to kind of have that that sort of uh, global or social conscience and, and touch on those things without banging you over the head with it. Yeah. Let's talk about uh, let's talk about Henry Silva a little bit. Oh, let's. <laughs> You want to open it up about Henry Silva, or do you want me to open it up, or what? Uh, I'd be glad to. Uh, Henry Silva, you know, he's done a lot of Italian stuff. He's done some Polizia films. I mean, he has a pretty strong body of work. He's got a um, lot of credits. I think 130, 40, something like that. He's still around, too, by the way. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and he he's called into the film, actually, as sort of the big game hunter, <laughs> because they don't think the police, who, who went into the sewers banging pots and pans and nightsticks <laughs> to try and draw this gator out, which they created quite a, a racket, by the way. I mean, if I was Ramon, and that's the name of the alligator, if I was him, I wouldn't have been laying in wait, cool as the fawns. I would have leapt out of there and done my best Hulk smash on these fucking assholes, <laughs> just creating such a racket. But anyway, that aside, Henry Silva's called in the big game hunter. You know, he's going to take care of business, and, and he's pretty funny in it. You know, he's got that safari hunting suit on. <laughs> uh, but one thing he's missing from the safari suit is the hat. You know, that sort of hard plastic kind of yellow hat that they wear. Right, and right. Thinking about Henry Silva, I'm almost inclined to believe that he had some sort of a Peter North type clause in his uh, contract for this film that said he's not going to wear a safari hat and absolutely no one can touch his hair or they will feel his strong pimp hand. Exactly, yeah. Silva, and he never changes clothes in this movie, which, you know, that happens in a lot of movies and stuff, but this outfit he wears, you know, he never changes his clothes. So, you know, he's just a, he's, he's, his hair. I don't even know where to start with Henry Silva. He first of all, he's he's never really been a great quote unquote actor. He's always he's got a very distinctive face. Uh I believe he's from New York City. I don't know of what descent he is. He looks like he might have a little bit of Asian in him. Well, I, I would say if Silva's his last name, he's probably Italian. If yeah, not he, maybe maybe Portuguese, but probably Italian. Yeah, he's definitely got uh, you know, he's definitely a mixture of something. And uh, he's got a great tough guy face. You know, I've seen him in a lot of movies. I remember he was in uh, Sharky's Machine, I think, with Burt Reynolds. He was in uh, yeah. 
Oh, he's in quite a bit of stuff. He was in the original Ocean's Eleven, I think, with Frank Sinatra and those guys, uh, which, uh, you know, not really a great movie, but he's in there. I think he hung out with Frank Sinatra for a while, which is kind of weird. And uh, anyway, uh, he really comes into this movie, and he's only in it really maybe about 10, 15 minutes, but man, he he hams it up in the 10 or 15 minutes he's in there. Oh, yeah. And and his hair, it never moves. (laughs) It never moves. There's a scene where he's talking to a reporter, and he's doing sound effects of... uh, uh, I guess an alligator call or an alligator mating call. And they are some of the goofiest scenes I've ever seen. I never thought I'd see Henry Silva of all people doing these scenes and everything. I don't know. He he he's uh he's wooden. He's always been wooden. He looks great. He's got a great look to him and everything else, but uh, his acting has never been top notch, but he is very entertaining in this film. And again, if anybody watches it, just remember that uh, he's not going to take that safari jacket off for no reason at all. That thing stays on no matter what. Oh, yeah. It doesn't matter where he is. You know, that <laughs> thing's staying on. The hair is not moving. And, you know, just getting back to Peter North thing, this came out in 1980. I almost wonder if Henry Silva is responsible for the legend known as Peter North <laughs> because he preceded Peter North with that hair. So I That's possible. That, uh, yeah, definitely. But, no, he's, he's Henry Silva's great in this film. I mean... Like you said, he, he really hams it up. He he's he happily kind of plays along with uh, with the hamminess of it. Yeah, he was he was very enjoyable in it. Yeah, he uh, there's some great scenes. There's a great scene where he comes into an alley and he comes upon a big pile of alligator shit and he goes, "Whoa, he's a big one!" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, then you get a close up of alligator uh, uh, shit there. And uh, then there's uh, another scene where he decides to buy liquor uh, for what he calls the uh, local natives, which is uh, three. Uh, uh, young men, urban men of the uh, the Chicago. Well, we'll go into this thing being in Chicago in a second, but and he asked them to take him to the uh, to the uh, where they you know where they might find this alligator and stuff. And they take him to a place which has a lovely name that I I just can't forget because it has the most childish name of any uh, alley I've ever heard in the city. And they call it Booger Alley, uh, which what the hell, man? I mean, <laughs> if you're gonna call an alley something, you can call it you know like Dead Man's Alley or Butcher's Alley or something like that. Why would you want to call it Booger Alley? <laughs> Yeah, I didn't. I thought that was kind of comical myself. Booger Alley. (laughs) Lovely. Sounds like a 12 year old wrote that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. uh, This film is supposedly supposed to take place in Chicago. And me and you talked about this. And of course, Forster is from Chicago, uh, or well, he spends most of his time in, or he spent most of his uh, formative years in Chicago. And you can hear that in his uh, his accent and stuff. Uh, He doesn't hide it in this film, especially. Uh, But it's obviously. I'd be really surprised. I don't. I can't say for sure because I didn't look up the details. But I'd be really, really surprised if this was actually shot in Chicago because it doesn't look like the Chicago I know. No, not at all. <laughs> not one bit. I yeah, same thing. I mean, I've only ever been through Chicago a few times, um, and it just it didn't look like Chicago at all. And they they kept it sort of intentionally in small spaces. But yeah, it just it didn't look like Chicago to me either. So I, I found that, yeah. <laughs> also, I, I want to bring up that uh, Dean Jagger's in this film. A lot of people aren't familiar with Dean Jagger. Dean Jagger, uh, a lot of acting credits and everything else. Did a lot of westerns, things like that. But he did win an Oscar for a, a World War II film with uh, Gregory Peck called uh, 12 O'Clock High. It's a pretty good movie. Uh, I think it's a fighter pilot type film. I haven't seen it in years. It's probably something I saw when I was a kid. But uh, Jagger was great. And uh, I guess I could bring this up uh, because we talked about this and everything else. And evidently I have an, a condition that I pay attention to these kind of things. But uh, uh, Jagger was interesting because uh, he had a very bad speech impediment or a thick tongue, if you will. And I'm, I'm sure I'm going <laughs> to alienate some people out there who might have a speech impediment. If, if so, I apologize for that. But uh, whenever the camera would, camera would roll... He uh, would talk completely clearly, so I guess it was just a nervous reaction or something. So, kind of uh, a tune uh, to uh, maybe uh, Mel Tillis, the country singer, who would stutter 
and did it for a joke too, but he actually did have a stutter in real life. But when he sang, he would uh, sing just completely, uh, you know, perfectly. He never stuttered or anything. So I guess it's just, you know, performance anxiety kind of comes in and you just all of a sudden straighten up or, or something like that. Or maybe, I don't, I don't know what it is. Maybe I don't, maybe I don't sound as Southern when I do the show. Maybe that's something, but uh, I don't know. I think I do. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I agree. It's uh, when you said that to me, I thought, here you go again with the thick <laughs> tongues and speech. You know, the other show CD has dong talk. We have speech impediment talk. <laughs> yeah. So far um, speech impediment is something we are cornering. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Definitely. I know, you know, another person we briefly touched on, I just want to very quickly talk about is Robin Riker as Dr. Yeah. Kendall. I mean, mm-hmm. she was a fox in this film. I mean, that's one hot ginge. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, I was. I thought she was really, really good looking. And uh, and she was good enough in her role. I mean, it, you know, let's face it, it's a B movie. She doesn't need to be Meryl Streep or anything. But uh, I thought she was really easy on the eyes, and it was nice to have her in it, too. Yeah, and she has quite a few movie credits to her name. I think, I know the other night I was talking to you about uh, maybe her being on Seinfeld at, at one point. I th- I'm I'm starting to doubt if that was her or not. Uh, it seems like it might be somebody that looks like her. Anyway, she's done a lot of stuff, uh, a lot of TV stuff, especially and everything. Yeah, she was uh she was attractive, very young and and attractive, uh, redhead. I think she had green eyes and everything else. Uh, very unique looking and uh, uh, very uh, uppity uppity in the movie. At first, she starts out as really this young smartass, and eventually she falls for uh, you know Forster's uh, magnetic charm. I can't blame him. There's a great scene between him and her and the thinning hair. That's all I'll say. It's pretty funny. Oh, yeah, it is. And one thing I, I just want to add to that is he, uh, she's sort of doubting that he likes her. And he goes on to say, you know, what's not to like? You're a brilliant mind, this and that. You got beautiful tits. And uh, I like that line because I had a friend, a good friend of mine growing up. His dad used to use that line. Oh, she has beautiful tits. And I'd never heard those words used together. And it was just, it was funny to, for him to, to use the word beautiful and tits, which makes complete sense right. uh, together in one line. And, and just, uh, of course, Forrester's delivery of it was good too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You totally feel like, you know, that's something that he would actually say in real life. Yeah, they're, they're, they're uh, courting or they're, you know, kind of messing with each other and stuff. It starts out as kind of an anger thing and then it kind of turns into a mutual appreciation thing. But it's great that it's it's an honest relationship in the movie. And again, this is a B movie. B movies typically don't have this. They typically kind of go around things or just drop, you know, drop clothes and have a sex scene. But this, you get some, you know, some flirting and some mutual admiration from each one. You can see it growing in the film between the two of them. And eventually, you know they get to a scene where he's like look we're gonna go out and have dinner and i'm wondering if uh you know if you're gonna come back and stay the night with me i mean he just cuts right to the chase and that's what i like about this movie a lot as far as a relationship goes a lot of movies they kind of just keep going around and around and around this one the blunt and honest and and really a lot of relationships i've been in in my past before i got married and stuff sometimes blunt honesty like that works a lot better for you than uh you know kind of faking it i like that i thought it added a real nice real touch to the uh oh. to the film oh definitely Definitely. Just a couple of things I want to talk about in terms of Ramon, who's the alligator <laughs> in, in the film. Um, I really liked the miniatures and uh, the sort of the special effects with the film. I mean, they're, they're all practical, obviously. This predates CGI by uh-huh. a good number of years. And, yep. you know, for the most part, I mean, they did a really good job with them in some of the, the some of the scenes and him being... You know, there was a scene where he busts out from the street when the kids are playing stickball. I thought that oh, yeah, was that's a that's a very memorable scene, and we will be talking about that again shortly. Yeah, no, that that was a really good scene. You know, I, I really enjoyed that. But the thing I found sort of odd about that: there's this cop who's the first guy on the scene, and uh, he gets out of his car and he falls down, and Ramon's oh, no, coming wait, wait, towards. Wait. First, he first he wrecks in oh, one he of the most car. insane wrecks I've ever seen. 
<laughs> oh yeah, he he's like honestly, you know, a six year old would be a better driver. I couldn't believe. Yeah, that's right. It's funny you brought that up. I'd forgotten that. He just wrecks the car. I mean, it just he swerves or something and just you know mangles the car. Mangles it, you know, and there's a gigantic. I mean, it's just like something out of like Cannonball Run. I mean, it's like a gigantic explosion. And then all of a sudden, you know, he's just you know he's okay. He's just kind of trying to get out of the car. Yeah, yeah, Cannonball Run or a Michael Bay movie. Yeah, there you go. So, there you go. Yeah, so it's just he, so he gets out of the car. He's a little bit banged up. Ramon's tromping towards him, mouth open. Ramon starts to attack this cop, and you know the camera kind of uh, goes from his legs up to his face, so you can see his expression. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, this idiot is reaching for the door handle for his broken down car instead of reaching for the gun that you just saw on his holster. Yeah, <laughs> something that this guy deserves to be eaten and shit back out by Ramon. I mean, come on, you got a gun on your holster, man. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea what he was thinking. I guess he thought the car that he had... Uh, well, I mean, the, the car held up pretty well considering the magnitude of the wreck. Yeah. So maybe he yeah. thought maybe if he could get back in the car, he could run over the gator. I don't know, but uh, you're right. Why didn't he grab the gun? I was thinking that last night when I was re-watching it. I was like, why is he not grabbing his gun? No, I know. It, it didn't make any... Well, that's okay. I mean, I thought it was a little humorous. Just a couple of things I want to touch on before we, we move on to our uh, our ratings and so forth. I thought the vendors that were selling alligator merchandise in one of the scenes was good. It was a nice little piece, again, getting back to the commentary uh-huh. on sort yep. of the entrepreneurial spirit of uh, of Western society. Yes, um, yes, you're right. Anytime, uh, I don't know if people pay attention, but it seems like anytime something tragic or something crazy happens, there's always going to be somebody that's going to, you know, that one guy says, hey, it's free enterprise or whatever when he busting for trying to sell a pet alligator. Yeah, that's that's pretty much uh, modern society. I mean, that still goes on now. I mean, this film was made, like I say, in 1980, 1979 or whatever. And uh, that still happens now. We're truly an exploitive race. I mean, we find some something tragic and we find any way we can to exploit it. So well, not no, say I... we, but society does. Yes, because we're gentlemen. We don't. Yes, do we that. don't exploit anything. Exactly. As I put away my nude pictures of women I have in front of me while I record. Exactly. Um, one more thing. The police captain, Captain Kangaroo. That's not his name, but that's who he kind of reminded me of. This guy really bothered me. I mean, no one in the movie gave him a lozenge, and I think he really needed one because just clear your throat, man. Yeah, he's, that just, guy, oh, he's that, always that, yelling. That guy always sounds like that. Every movie I've ah. ever seen that guy, and he sounds like that. Yeah, it's just horrible, man. Take a fucking halls already, man. Get it over with. You know? Oh, yeah. But uh, just a few more things here. I was surprised. There's a scene where a kid gets eaten by Ramon. And I was, at the time, surprised. But then as I stopped and thought about it, this is the late 70s, early 80s. And, and that's how that time period rolled. I mean, you look at Assault on Precinct 13, the little girl with the ice cream cone. So mm-hmm. I guess this kid, is uh, as, a, as Gator, sna- uh, Gator Snack, would make sense. So Yeah, and I'll was- go over. That scene will come up again in a few minutes as well. <laughs> okay. Just uh, one more thing then. I was almost brought to tears by the beauty of the mullets and feathered hair in the symphony that were playing at the wedding. Oh, they were awesome. Oh, they were excellent. I mean, they, they should have had their own credit in the cast. I mean, first-class mullets, first-class feathered hair. Yeah, those mullets were so more. strong that if Ramon would have bitten down, he probably would have broke his alligator teeth. Oh, he would have. There's no question. No question. Um, that's pretty much all I got in terms of the film. Uh, if you want to get into our, our uh, ratings and so forth. Okay, well, I'm going to get into my um, 
uh, memorable shots or the make or break scene. Uh, for me, there's a couple make or break scenes in this movie, and this movie is written by John Sales, which we forgot to mention. Uh, but uh, Sales is always one for very quotable dialogue. If anybody's familiar with John Sales' work, he has a director or just as a screenwriter, he has a lot of quotable lines and stuff. Even though I didn't take any of his quotable lines out of this movie, but trust me, there's a lot of them. I just didn't pick any of them. I just went with the scenes this time, and uh, the alligator out of the sewer is a great scene. It's a it's a very memorable scene. I mean, if you saw this movie as a kid, that was probably the scene you remember the most. Uh, although I still have a hard time figuring out how, if he's coming up out of a manhole cover, how he got through this, you know, the cylindrical tube that comes up out of a manhole. Uh, but, you know, he's just such a big gator that, uh, you know, it, it all goes out the window anyway. But it's a great little scene. Uh, and they use a real alligator, I think, a real baby alligator on a small set to come out of there, which is, it really works well. Like you said earlier, in special effects and stuff, I mean, they use a real alligator for some shots. It's a real small alligator. And they, you know, build sets to scale and stuff, and it works really, really well. But the alligator of the sewer is one scene. Uh, there's a great, great scene before I get to the one. These are kind of like runner-ups, but there's uh, there's a great scene that I don't know if you remember. It's about 25 minutes into the movie. Uh, Forster and the cop, the young cop, are on, 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 in the sewers looking around and there's a brief glimpse of the alligator in the background yeah that was excellent i really liked that and I, I forgot to write that down but i was really impressed with that as well this the sort of in the background you could see as they're talking facing yes. away from the gator yeah that was good it's literally like a half a second shot i mean it's really really but it is set up very well and again it's it goes back to teague's use of uh you know his uh use of not showing the alligator that much. I mean, we had a big, he had a big animatronic alligator and, uh, he managed to make this thing scary, even though, you know, if you, you know, it's a big fake alligator. I mean, there's scenes where it's obviously a fake alligator, but, uh, he makes it done really, I mean, he does it really well. And this is a B movie director. You know, this isn't Steven Spielberg who gets all the credit for like jaws and everything else for the big fake shark. This is, uh, you know, Louis Teague, who's not mentioned in the same breath as Steven Spielberg, I'm afraid. And, uh, he does a really good job with this animatronic alligator, him and the special effects guys. And I don't know who the special effects guys were, but they do a very good job with um, keeping the alligator hidden or doing point-of-view shots. Or there's some shots where the camera's right next to the alligator's face, and they're just moving the face toward the person or whatever. That was another one. But the scene that sticks with me the most, because it sticks with me the most from being a kid. And, you know, we, we've been asked a, a couple times about some other podcast hosts and everything else. is like, you know, your show's called The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. What does that mean? Does that mean you cover... Midnight movies like, you know, Pink Flamingos or Rocky Horror Picture Show or films like that. Well, yeah, we like those kinds of movies and things like that. But when I think Midnight Cinema, here's what I think. I think about growing up and my mom and dad would go to bed and I would sneak up in the middle of the night and I would turn on cable TV because we had gotten cable and I would watch stuff that I wasn't supposed to be watching. And Alligator happened to be one of those films. And that is, to me, is the definition of Midnight Cinema. It's the movies you watch when you're up late. It's the movies you watch when nobody else is around, maybe sometimes, or something like that. You know, guilty pleasures or whatever you want to call them. But Midnight Cinema, it isn't just actual midnight movies. It's movies that you love. At, you know, late at night, and Alligator's a great movie to watch late at night. And the scene that stuck with me the most as a kid was the swimming pool scene. And here's how much it stuck with me. It stuck with me so much that I wouldn't go near a swimming pool if somebody had where they didn't put their pool cover in in the fall and they had leaves and the water was all green and everything else. I would not go near that swimming pool. I was absolutely convinced there was probably an alligator or some kind of creature in that in that pool. <laughs> I was convinced of that. And uh, like like Jaws did with the ocean for me, and I, I have a, a natural fear of water. I'll just throw that out there, a little personal information. Uh, like Jaws did for the ocean for me, alligator actually did for swimming pools for me, but only dirty swimming pools not clear swimming pools let me be let me be uh let me get to the point there so that was the scene that stuck with me the most uh and uh the one i remember the most also i'll just go over my mvt before i give my score and then i'll kick it over to you the mvt for this movie is pretty easy and pretty obvious uh i was gonna go with the alligator at first because the alligator is pretty great but 
I just have to go with Forster and Teague. I was going to go with just Forster, but Teague does a really great job here. You know, he's done some other movies, Cujo, uh, some other stuff. Uh, I think he did uh, Cat's Eye, another Stephen King thing. I think he did some parts of that. And, and I, there's some other stuff I'm forgetting right now off the top of my head. But him and Forster work so good in this movie. And Teague knew that Forster was a star. Like Tarantino knew Forster was a star. And he used him right. And he carries this movie and everything else. And that... Uh, without a doubt, is the MVT of this movie for me, is Forster and Teague working together and creating what I think is a it's a B-movie classic, one of the best B-movies that uh, you could possibly watch. As far as my rating goes, I'm going to give it a 7.5. It actually came in higher than I thought it would. Uh, I thought maybe that might be because of nostalgia, but to be honest with you, I just I really, really enjoy this movie, and I've seen it, uh, I can't even count how many times I've seen it, and every time I watch it, I enjoy it again. So I'm going to go with a 7.5, and I'll uh, kick it over to you. Okay. Uh, all the scenes you mentioned were great. Uh, I can't deny that. There's probably a handful of really, really good scenes in it. The scene for me is the one I think probably gets the most acclaim, and, and to me I can see why. It's the scene at the wedding with the mulleted symphony. Um, <laughs> Ramon, <laughs> Ramon comes stomping through this sort of outdoor garden wedding, and, I mean, he just goes to town. I mean, there's, he's whipping people with his tail. Yes. He's crushing cars with his tail. There's blood spraying, bodies flying. I mean, it's just bedlam. So, <laughs> to me, that scene was, was really fun. Uh, and it's, it's to me, the, the make-or-break scene for the film. Although, like I said, there were a lot of other good scenes. Yep. Um, my MVT is, is uh, I guess, in partial agreement with you, is Robert Forrester. Not to discredit Teague, because you're right, Teague did know how to use him, but... Forrester was so good in this, and like you said, and we've said throughout this uh, review, it's a shame that he wasn't more prominent, because he's such a likable guy, and he was so good in this film, and carried it for me in the slow spots, because let's face it, it's not um, like a kaiju film where, you know, you got, you're going to have just non-stop monsters, you know, there's got to be that human element to this, because Forrester is the star, and, and he carried it through the lulls, so I... He was definitely my MVT. And again, the film itself, my rating, um, I rated it a little bit lower. I gave it a 6.5 out of 10. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that it's a bad film. If, if you're a fan of B-movies, and I'm sure if you're listening to our show, you are, it's it's a lot of fun. It's a really good film. I really enjoyed it. You know, I think it's it's you know it's worth owning for sure if you're a fan of them. And, you know, you can do a lot worse than this. So, But that's right. my rating uh, as far as it goes. And one more thing before we get away from alligator. Have you ever actually eaten alligator? I will say no, I have not. I have. And, of course, as most amphibians do, it does taste like chicken. <laughs> Just for what it's worth. I had uh, alligator fingers, like chicken fingers. Oh, really? At a, at a local, my, my dad tried to dupe me, and I had already seen them on the menu, and he ordered them when I went away to watch a football game at the bar for a few minutes. And, <laughs> of course, it didn't quite taste like chicken. So, anyway, if you ever get a chance, guys, eat some gator. It's good. Yeah, tastes like eat chicken. Eat some gator, yeah. yeah well, I know down here in the south we do eat frog legs quite a bit. I don't know if you guys eat those up there. Oh, yeah, they're good. Yeah, yeah. I've ate frog legs quite a bit in my lifetime, yeah. I won't eat yeah, them no, now they're... because my wife is appalled when she sees them come on a plate. Yeah, no, my <laughs> wife's the same way. <laughs> So that's Alligator, guys. Hope you enjoyed the review. We're going to take a short break, and we will be right back. This is Bill from Outside the Cinema. If you're hearing this, then you probably like podcasts. Logical. Flawlessly logical. Well, let me tell you. If you like horror movies, exploitation films, and underground and cult films, why not check out Outside the Cinema? You gotta tell them! www.outsidethecinema.com You're a smart motherfucker. Hey, man, I try. Three dollars they go by me and 
Anybody familiar with uh, Tarantino will know that song. I thought that would be a little fun to throw in there. All right, let me get that down. There we go. All right. Are we ready for a second film? Yes, we absolutely are. I'm, I'm really excited to talk about this one. <laughs> All right, so I'm going to let you introduce it and everything else, and uh, then you can kick it back over to me. Okay, I'm uh, just going to preface this film a little bit in terms of, or explain why, one of the reasons I wanted to do a podcast. Basically, there's a lot of films I love that I feel don't get enough credit, and one of the main reasons I wanted to do a podcast was to introduce these to people that hadn't seen them and push them a little bit more, and kind of do my part to get them a little more exposure. So this is definitely one of those films. Um, a Bittersweet Life uh, was made in 2005. It's, it's done by Kim Ji-Woon. He's a South Korean director uh, who was kind of in the midst of the, uh, the big Korean new wave from about 2000 to 2006, which regrettably and sadly was cut short by the Hollywood quota, which um, essentially forced Hollywood films into Korean theaters and put a lot of films out of work as a result. Um, that actually resulted in Choi Min-shik, uh, who played Oh Dae-soo in Old Boy, going into exile from films up until very recently, uh, as he was so upset with it. But anyway, that's that's for another show altogether. Um, Kim Ji-Woon is he's a great director, uh, and we'll get into his body of work a little bit later on. But essentially, I'll give you guys a plot for A Bittersweet Life. Okay, uh, Sun Woo is no ordinary hotel manager. Decisive and efficient, he's also the right-hand man of underworld boss Kang. But tough guy Kang has a weakness, his young girlfriend Hee Soo. Suspecting she's unfaithful, Kang orders Sun Woo to take care of the problem. When Sun Woo discovers Hee Soo with another man, he's unable to kill them without a reasonable explanation. Sun Woo has a hunch that in doing so, he has made the first mistake of his life. But before he can figure out why, he has this feeling he falls victim to a surprise attack. Kang is furious and has ordered his gang members to hunt down Sun Woo and kill him. Hee Soo may have triggered the conflict, but she no longer is what, excuse me, is no longer what is driving Sun Woo. With nerves of steel, Sun Woo battles the gang alone. With each kill, he takes one step closer to Kang. So that's sort of in a nutshell what the movie's about um since this is the one that i had brought this week i wanted to get your thoughts on this first samurai well let me just say first and foremost that i want to thank you for bringing this movie to my attention this is something that i probably wouldn't have seeked out on my own uh i'd heard about it and heard some good buzz about it but because of uh, well i mean just because of some of the things that uh it's not as readily available although i think we found out that it is but anyway it just uh well let's put it this way it wasn't on my netflix queue because netflix doesn't have it and if netflix doesn't have it i'm probably not going to get it anytime soon so uh i was really just completely stunned by this movie that's the best word to use is stunned um kim ji woon I, I have to see everything he does from now on until, you know, the day he quits making movies or the day I quit watching movies because this is a, this is a very, 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 very good movie. And, uh, you know, you'll hear my rating in a little while and everything else, but 
again, I just want to thank you for bringing this. This is one of the great things about doing a podcast the way we do it, which is, you know, I pick a film and uh, Willie picks a film, is that uh, sometimes we're going to bring stuff that the other one hasn't heard of. And this is one of the, like Trinity for you, the first show, this is the one for me that I'm like very thankful that I had an opportunity to even get into. I'll go over a few things that I love about this movie. First, let me just say that uh, this thing is, it's it's a beautiful, beautiful use of music in this film. I mean, they're, I'm very big on scores and movies and things like that. And this one, hits all the right notes and this and the music is very diverse it uh, you got some like uh i think me and you talked about some mexican standoff type music and then you have some very poetic beautiful music and then you have some very action-oriented type music it's a mixture of all those type of things but it is all done very very well it sets the mood mood very it sets the mood very well i really really like that the uh the violence in this film it is it is brutal I mean, at first it doesn't seem like it's going to be that brutal, and then it just kind of it kind of takes a brutal turn. It gets as the film progresses, it gets more and more brutal, and I really like that. And I would even venture to say that this is probably out of all the Korean films I've seen, uh, South Korean films, uh, and I haven't seen that many. Uh, I've seen a couple of the Vengeance movies. I've seen Old Boy, obviously. I've seen uh, maybe a couple other things, but of all the Korean films I've seen, this has got to be at the top. This is the best uh, Korean film I've. I've seen so far, and uh, my only hope is I'll get to see some more films that are great from uh, Koreans. I, I really don't have a, I really don't have even words to express how much I like this. Uh, I will say this though, my perception of the movie is, is that it's about perception. Uh, there's a scene at the beginning with some trees blowing in the wind, and uh, a quote, a Buddhist quote, and I can't quote it right now, so I'm not going to try. Uh, but it's basically about perception. You know, are the trees blowing in the wind? Is the wind blowing the trees? And and really, it's more that your mind is is picking that up. Is that you know the trees are blowing and the wind is blowing because you see that because you feel that and that's really what the main character to me really is he he is very good at what he does which is he's an enforcer basically but he doesn't want to be an enforcer he wants to be a normal everyday guy who has a very normal life who enjoys the really nice things like a nice dessert or a drink or you know a nice suit he wants to enjoy all these things but unfortunately he's very very good at what he does he's very efficient at what he does and he'll never really get that opportunity to enjoy those things. And hence the title, probably A Bittersweet Life, you know. And I think the bar in the movie is called La Dolce Vita, which I think means the sweet life. I'm not positive, but I think yeah. it is. Yeah, it's Italian for the sweet life. Yeah, and so there's there's some... This film is very deep with the, you know, that and everything else. And I picked that up very quickly with the opening and the closing. And I'm not going to mention the closing because I don't want to give away the ending of this movie. Because I can't recommend people see it enough. But that, that that's what my perception of the film was. My perception was he wanted to be the average Joe. He wanted to be a guy who had a life, maybe a family, uh, all of these things. He was very envious of all these people that, you know, live their normal lives and stuff. But unfortunately, he was so good at what he does that, uh, you know... And he'd been doing it like, I think, six or seven years, he says at one point in the film, that he really had no choice. He had walked down that path, and that path is what led him to where he is, and there really was no turning back. And so in that way, it's kind of a tragic, or, as like I say with the title, a bittersweet story, and uh, uh, a very good one. I mean, I, I really, I'm kind of dumbfounded by how good this is. And uh, Kim Ji-Woon is not mentioned enough, I can tell you that. Uh, this guy, uh, and I know we've talked about it, that the good, the bad, the weird... Uh, is coming out sometime soon. Um, I can't wait to see that. If anybody's been on the Pop Syndicate boards, you'll see some trailers for that, or you can find trailers for it. Uh, that looks insane, and I can't wait to see that as well. So this guy is a major, major talent, and I'm going to kick it over to you and let you drop some more notes in on this because you are definitely more familiar with Korean cinema than I am. Yeah, I, I certainly am, and, and that's one of, the, again, getting back to what I said earlier, it's one of the good things about doing this show. There's so much Korean cinema and modern Hong Kong cinema and Japanese cinema that I can't wait to cover with you. 
and with other people, like-minded people. Because um, I think, you know, Asia, specifically South Korea from 2000 to about 2000, or 99 to about 2005, no one could touch them in the world. I mean, in terms of what they were doing with uh, people like Park Chan-wook, Kim Ji-woon, Kim Ki-duk, Bong Joon-ho. I mean, these directors are all first-class filmmakers. Right. Um, but, you know, again, that's for another show. I'll get into more A Bittersweet Life. Um, one of the things I like is immediately, you know, the film establishes that Sun Woo, who is the main character, is a complete badass, and he's all business. Yes. Uh, he gets he gets notified by one of the workers at the hotel slash uh, gambling parlor slash house of sin sort of uh, establishment <laughs> yes. Yes. that there, there are some guys causing a ruckus in one of the rooms, sort of like a gambling kind of room. Uh, he goes in, and uh, he shuts the door and says to them, before I count to three, you guys better be out of this room. And, of course, the idiots... Don't take it seriously. So Sun advises one of his uh, his associates to lock the door now so they can't leave, which, you know, in itself was a very subtle nod to A Bronx Tale, the yes. De Niro film. Uh, and it's very badass. I mean, he runs across this table, uh, this sort of uh, dining room table, and just lays it on these guys, which which was a great, great scene to kind of get you, get you going and establish him. Um, further to that and further to Kim Ji-woon's familiarity and love of, of uh, gangster films. There's a scene where after these thugs come back to see their boss and they explain what happened to them, he proceeds to beat one of them to a bloody pulp with, uh, I think it's a rotary dial phone or sort of an old style phone, which was reminiscent of Pesci's uh, pen stabbing scene in Casino. Again, it's sort of a subtle nod. It's not a blatant ripoff like you'd see handled in less uh, skilled hands. Right. You know, that, that uh, both those scenes, uh, let me let me add a little something to that. Uh, the first scene, when I watched the first scene, I thought, okay, this is going to be like a kung fu type thing. And uh, then pretty much the the really, the real kung fu and stuff really much goes away. That's really just a setup scene for how badass this guy is because it turns into a different type of uh, violent film after the, you know, after the setup scenes and things. I'll say to that. And then also the, uh, the phone thing. That sounded... And I'm just kind of, you know, joking around here a little bit, maybe. But that sounded way more brutal than it ended up looking. <laughs> I mean, the sound effects when he was beating this guy's head with his phone. It sounded like uh, somebody was crushing melons. Oh, yeah. It was like a, you know, like a sledgehammer <laughs> to a melon or something. It, <laughs> yeah, it just sounded disgusting. <laughs> yeah, and again, it shows the, the, the skill and the restraint by Kim Ji-woon. Because to have you, and you and I talked about this in one of the scenes in Old Boy, with the teeth getting pulled. It's not what you see. It's what you hear and what your mind imagines. And it's the same thing with this phone scene. Where it's not what you see, it's what you don't see. It's what you hear and what your mind drums up uh, as far as an image for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, no, it was it was very well done yeah, in terms of that scene. Getting more into again another reference that I only recently picked up on uh, was I think that Kim Ji Woon was influenced a lot by Jean Pierre Melville's Le Samurai uh, in terms of the very basic heart of the story in some regards. Uh, some of the character's traits, his dedication to his job at the expense of his personal life. Uh, In fact, even the DVD cover and the poster art are similar to that of Le Samurai without being identical. Um, So again, it just shows subtle uh, influences of his without banging you over the head with it. So again, it just shows how familiar he is with his, uh, the work that inspired him. Um, There's a great scene, again, you know, in one of many, uh, where... Sun Wu returns home after a you know uh, lengthy day of shit kicking and problem solving, and he's lying on his couch, which is where he, he sleeps because he lives in sort of this very sparsely furnished apartment, mm-hmm. uh, and he's clicking this lamp on and off with this button. The, the screen goes black, the screen lights back up, 
screen goes black, screen lights back up. And the rhythm of that was great. And there's a scene a little bit later on where the same thing is done to great effect because it sets something up, a scene up that's that's really, really first class. And I don't want to say any more than that because it would kind of spoil right. spoil the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, further to that, there's a scene... Actually, you know what? I'm going to save this. I'll, I'll save what I was going to talk about next. It's It's one of the better scenes in the film. Uh, from sort of a, a thrill or visceral standpoint. Um, you know, there's some humor interwoven into the movie that you and I had talked about was very timely. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a scene where uh, Sun Wu's taken off. He's been, uh, I guess, kidnapped, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's two sort of low-level thugs that are outside digging his grave. And they can see in the background, you know, this car come bursting out of this uh, construction <laughs> site with guys chasing it. And they realize it's Sun Wu and he's gotten away. And one turns around and looks to the other one and says, stop digging. We're so fucked. And just their <laughs> delivery of that in combination with what you're seeing in the background, I mean, it was really well-timed. Yes. No, it was it was perfectly timed. That The comedy in this film is... is it, it's a lot like what we were talking about with Trinity. This film's a little darker than Trinity, but Trinity has comedy in it, but it's really a Western with little bits of comedy. And this is more... And this is like a revenge film or an action film with little bits of comedy in it. So... It has some similarities there, although it be it is a much darker film than Trinity, obviously. But it does have some similarities in the comic timing, uh, and you'll hear me talk about that again when we do our make or breaks. Uh, some of it is is top notch. I mean, it is very very good scenes. I would show to anybody, even if they didn't want to watch the movie. I'd say, well, hey, okay, wa- watch the scene anyway. Oh yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, one other thing I want to mention that may seem a little bizarre to people is the lengths that some of the characters have to go to once the shit hits the fan, as the saying goes, that the lengths they go to to try and get their hands on a gun. Um, you know, and there's another great comedic scene there where Sun Wu's trying to get this gun and he meets this Russian guy and this Korean guy and, you know, he's saying, okay, you got to get someone to vouch for you and come back the next day and do this and do that. But you, you think to yourself, well, why is it so hard to get a gun? But this is actually due to very strict gun laws in Asia and specifically in South Korea. Um, it's very, very hard to get a hold of a gun there. And even in a lot of Korean gangster movies I've watched, a lot of times it's hand-to-hand combat. There's you know, bottles, knives, bricks, sort of whatever's at your disposal is used as opposed to guns. And you, know, you really can see how serious things have gotten in this movie and how far things have escalated. And there's a few great lines uh, I don't want to really get into. I want people to sort of experience it in the film that Sun Wu laments over one line he says a few times in the film. But you can see when these characters are picking up the guns that they're not marksmen, you know, like Chow Yun-Fat with two guns sliding across a hospital gurney or Terrence Hill or anyone else. I mean, they're, you know, maybe 20 feet away and they're kind of missing on a few shots and stuff. And again, it just it's, it was grounded in reality a little bit, which I thought was, an, again, a nice touch that uh, mm-hmm. Kim Ji-Woon put in. Yeah, they're sloppy, sloppy gun battles. Yeah, they're sloppy, I, they're I like bloody. They're sl- yeah, they're sloppy, bloody, and it kind of would. And I've not been in very many gun battles, but uh, <laughs> uh, it would seem to me that that's the way a gun battle would really be. It wouldn't be as uh, movie perfect as they are typically. You know, it would be uh, wild shots, uh, scrapings, blood flying around, people losing ears, and all kinds of craziness. It would be, it would be a massacre and a mess more than it would be a poetic uh, kind of ballet, which is sometimes how they are interpreted in film. And that's fine, too. I mean, that that's right in a, in, a, in a certain context. But, yeah, in this context, it worked well, like you said, to have the sloppy, messy sort of fingers and ears gone and sort of blood everywhere uh, type of a feel to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing I do want to mention in regards to the guns, and this isn't spoiling anything um, because it's something you and I had discussed, was in sort of the last main scene of the film, it looks like one of the main characters is shot in the head, 
Yet they keep on fighting and shooting. And I remember the first time I watched that, I thought, well, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, this guy's just been shot in the head. I mean, how is he still going? He's, he's you know, he's still running around, shooting and all sorts of stuff. And I was with a few friends at the time, and one of them said, hang on, hang on, let's rewind that, because th- this makes no sense. So we rewound it and watched it in slow-mo. And you can see on slow-mo, and this is maybe the one thing in the movie that wasn't conveyed very clearly, is that the bullet grazes him. It kind of takes off a chunk of his ear. So... Mm-hmm. If and when, and I really highly encourage all of you to get seek this film out, when you see that film, don't think he's a T-800 or T-1000 that's just been <laughs> shot and keeps going. It's that his ear got grazed, and you just couldn't see it in real time when it was uh, when it happened. Yeah, I thought the same thing when I saw it. I thought, wow, you know, this, this guy's a machine, man, and nothing can stop him. I and then I, I, I looked more closely, and I realized what was really going on. So it is, it is, a, it can be misinterpreted very easily, but... Uh, it's it's not as as bad as you would think. It it actually works quite well. Oh yeah, no, it definitely it definitely does. Yeah, I mean, one final thing I just want to talk to you in terms of interpretation. Like you said, Samurai, this is a film that really is about perception. A lot of people that I've talked to think this film. They take it very literally. They think that Sun Woo falls in love with the boss's girlfriend, and this is sort of the the event that gets the ball rolling in this film. And and I I never felt that. I think what it was more was that she personified sort of this normal sweet life that that he never could attain because of how far how deep he was into the life he was living Um, and a lot lot of people viewed it the other way and I I just never saw that I just think you know and they even touch on this when his boss uh, comments to him that he's never had a serious girlfriend and that's why he trusts him so much and I think again she just personified what what a normal life would be in sort of this uh, unicorn of sorts that you know he could never never grasp yeah I think that's our American conventions in film uh, language coming out. Uh, I can see where if I'm an American and I watch this movie, that that's my initial reaction. My initial reaction is, is he's fallen in love. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music's very pretty. The you know the girl's very pretty. Uh, you know you got all of these things going on. But if you really pay attention, I don't think it's about uh, a love story. It is for the boss character, but I think for him, it's his love of what she has achieved in her life and uh, she plays a cello she's a cellist and uh, he thinks that you know that's beautiful as well and it's it's all of those things but i don't see the love connection much there are a couple moments where i can see where that comes through where he needs somebody to talk to and it seems like he's trying to call her but i think that's more american conventions we would like for that to happen because that would be an american story uh point and that would make a lot more sense to an american film goer than it would you know somebody else because uh, most of our movies are like that you know if you put a girl in the movie she's a love interest it doesn't matter if you know it's sandra bullock on the bus in speed you know i mean she's basically driving the bus but you know at some point you know these two maybe have to kiss or fall in love or something so yeah I don't, you know that that's what americans would do you know they just can't have a, uh, a girl in a movie and just her be an object of something that drives something else so you're right it is uh it's a very good perception to pick up uh if you can pick it up uh, which people can i mean I, I think people will pick it up but it's not giving anything away with the movie because the movie's no, no. bittersweet life so Oh yeah, and I mean I'm I'm not the smartest bear in the room, so I mean yeah I'm not saying I'm I'm brilliant for picking it up, but I just thought it was interesting that my wife had seen more literal sense, and maybe that's her wanting to see sort of a lovey-dovey story, which you know a lot of women like. Mm-hmm. Um, and I yeah. wouldn't have, I wouldn't have minded that actually if they would have fallen in love in the movie and everything else, but this isn't that movie. If it was that movie, I would have been fine with it because it was still well done. But this is not that kind of movie. So that that's as much as I can really say about that without giving away the ending and everything else of the movie and giving away too much. But this is not that kind of movie. So if you see the movie, you'll know why it doesn't. It wouldn't work. I think. Yeah. No. Exactly. Did you want to get into your uh, your your rating, I guess, and MVT and so forth? 
Yeah, I'll get into my make or break scene. The make or break for me is uh, definitely, well, there's two scenes, but one sticks out more than the other. I'll give my runner up. The runner up is the scene with him buying the guns from the uh, the Russians or the uh, or whatever. That scene, it plays a very fine line and shows you the talent of Kim Ji-woon, that he can play tension, comedy, uh, horror, basically. Uh, this violence and stuff is just horrible. And and he can put it all in the span of a five-minute scene. And just by itself, it's like a little masterpiece. Of, of filmmaking just that little five minute scene i mean it's really really good and uh i would show that I'll, I'll be showing that to my brother soon because he'll get a kick out of that especially uh something that happens in that scene which i don't want to give away because i think it was a really good laugh for me and uh a laugh followed by a, a, a thought of oh my god i can't believe you just did that <laughs> so uh that's one that's my runner-up but the scene that really hit me the most is the scene where he goes with her to her for she's going to record some music and there's a scene and it, it's it's harking back on later in the film which i won't get into but i'll get into the initial scene he's sitting there and there's a shot behind him that kind of rises slowly and comes up on the back of his head as if to say the music she's playing is so beautiful that it's just getting inside of his you know it's getting inside of his brain inside of his skull and he's closing his eyes and He's smiling at her. She's smiling at him. Again, I think this can be misinterpreted as falling in love, but he's in love with the music, the simple beauty of the music he is hearing, the simple, you know, quiet peace that he doesn't ever have. Because uh, every time he's not working, he has nothing on. It's always just real quiet. He doesn't want to hear anything, but like one faint noise, like you said, with the the clicking of the light and stuff. He likes like one noise or one simple noise. And that scene really hit home with me because... It's very therapeutic. Music can be very therapeutic and, and everything else. And it's obvious to me that at that moment, he realized that he didn't want to be the guy he was anymore. He wanted to be somebody else. But he's driven to the things he's driven to. And so that was very, very poignant for me. A very, very good scene. Really just took, took the movie over the top for me. If uh, if the first 20 or 30 minutes didn't do it, that scene just nailed it right in the right in the, uh, right in the coffin right there. That was the one for me where I was just like, wow, this movie's amazing. And uh, my MVT for the movie, again, is the score. The score is, I mean, there's some great acting in this. There's great direction and everything else. I'm not taking anything away from Kim Ji-woon or, or the acting or anything, but the score in this movie is amazing. I mean, it's just amazing that the, it's all over the place. It's an action movie slash film noir type film slash revenge film and the score is taken so seriously that it makes it this very beautiful poetic piece of filmmaking that uh, it really has to be seen to be believed and i and, and with that i'm just going to go i'm going to leave it at that i'm just going to give my score and and recommend that people find a way to get a hold of this movie uh we were a little talking about how you, i think you saw it on amazon or something for like uh, 14 bucks or something like that not even it was on Amazon.com for ten bucks. So there I mean, you, you can't bucks listen. This book, yeah, yeah you, this movie, ten bucks. I mean, come on. I mean, and that's, that's the director's cut. Yeah, and that's less than going to you know, going to the movies nowadays. So I can't recommend people buy this movie enough. I give it a eight point five, which is a very high score for me, and something I didn't really expect to give it was an eight point five. I almost went to a nine even, but I thought, well, I'm gonna back off a little bit because there are some scenes that are kind of long. But this thing is a near masterpiece. Let's put it that way. It's an it's a near near perfect movie. You can't ask for anything better. The action scenes are great. The acting is very very good. It is a uh, it's a beautiful beautiful film, and uh, that's all I can say. I mean, eight point five, and if you guys uh, if you guys out there love buying DVDs and love buying movies like uh, me and Willie do, I recommend buying this. Uh, as soon as possible and watching it not even you, you can't rent it not that i know of because uh, i've tried uh but i am definitely going to purchase it uh i had somebody that actually i knew who gave me a copy of it and stuff so i was actually lucky that way but i can't recommend enough that people uh purchase this film and, and own it because it is a, a beautiful piece of filmmaking and that's pretty much all i got to say about that okay uh as far as what i have to say um 
make or break scene. I mean, there's so many great scenes, so many great shots. We could just talk about the technical aspects of the film probably for two hours uh, because there's so much going on in this film that that's worth talking about. Again, I'm going to go to some, and the scene you talked about was great. Uh, it was very poignant and the way, you know, like you said, the camera kind of came up slowly and it just washed over him, this sense of calm and mm-hmm. uh, took him to a place that he hadn't been, yeah. you know. Like and the that, like the wind in the trees at the beginning. That's, that's the kind of thing it felt like. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Exactly. But I'm going to have to say for me, the scene that put it over the top is, I, I like a lot of violence in my movies. I like a lot of bloodshed. You so macho this, bastard. A macho man, Randy Savage. <laughs> Dig it! Um, the scene where Sun Wu gets picked up by a group of the thugs uh, to pay for his basically perceived disrespect or betrayal of his boss. And he's tied up, and there's a guy there with a bunch of rusty, bloody instruments of torture he's going to use on him. And inevitably, Sun Wu kind of gets away. Now, this all takes place at a construction scene. Um, And the fight that takes place in this scene absolutely, absolutely rivals, if not surpasses, the scene with the hammer uh, in Old Boy with Odesu in the in the corridor of the building. I have I to mean, agree. I think it. I think it surpasses that scene. I'll have it, to, to try, pipe in with that. Oh yeah, because I mean, there's so much going on. It it's just, I mean, Sun Sun Wu uses everything as a, as an instrument of death. He uses a phone, cell phone battery, two by fours, fire lit objects, bricks, other building supplies, a car. I mean, it's just everything. But and probably the kitchen sink gets used to maim and and brutally assault people. In fact, there's one scene where this guy gets his. Uh, I don't know if you can hear me smiling. I'm just recalling this scene. <laughs> He, he takes this sucker and he drag he grinds his face along the brick wall and you can see the streak of blood and kind of hear the yes you it know of his, oh it's just brutal and that was the point where if I had any doubt that you weren't gonna love this film I actually said to my wife I go oh samurai's gonna love this film I can't wait for him to see it so that for me is the make or break scene and like I said I almost feel like I'm doing a disservice to the rest of the film because this whole film is is like you said, verging on a masterpiece. But that, for me, is the one that really put it over the top. Um, my MVT, I was kind of torn because I think Byung Hyun Lee was excellent in the film in the main role. Um, he, for those sort of not really aware of him, he's sort of like a Brad Pitt, I guess, of South Korea and Asia. He's a real heartthrob over there. Yeah, you know, He's a really good-looking guy. Uh, but he's a great actor, too, and he's not afraid to kind of dirty himself up a little bit um you know some of you may be familiar with him if you've seen the asian horror anthology three extremes he actually played the part of the film director in park chan wook's segment cut mm-hmm. um he also plays the bad in the new kim ji-woon film the good the bad and the weird and he's going to be in two hollywood movies which i'm really excited for he's going to be in one called i come with the rain which looks sort of like a noir kind of uh thriller uh and also He's going to be in G.I. Joe. He's going to be playing Snake Eyes. So I'm actually really excited to see that and glad to see his star on the rise. So I'm kind of torn between him and I'm kind of torn between the direction of Kim Ji-Woon because, you know, I have faith that potentially another actor could have stepped in and done that role because there's some other really great Korean actors out there. But I don't know if anyone could have directed it quite as well as as Kim Ji-Woon did. And just to kind of go for a little bit further into his uh, body of work. Some of you may be familiar with The Tale of Two Sisters. It created a lot of buzz over here, uh, sort yeah. of his uh, ghost story. Again, very good film. We, we may get to covering it at some point. He did The Foul King, which uh, has Song Kang Ho from the Vengeance trilogy in it. He's sort of the stockier-looking guy. Uh, he was also in The Host, 
Um, he also did um, The Quiet Family, which uh, Takashi Miike remade as The Happiness of the Katakuris. Um, and, of course, like I said, The Good, The Bad, and The Weird. So he's got uh, three, four, five, six films to his credit, and all of them are great. So, I mean... I don't know. I mean, I'm really torn between those two. Uh, I I don't know if I could pick one. If I had to pick one, I'm, maybe I'm going to go with. Mm, I don't know. I'll, I'll flip a coin. I guess Byung Hun Lee. I, I really enjoyed him in this. Yeah, that's a good and, choice. Yeah, I mean it's yeah, and my rating is the same as yours. I got to give it an eight and a half out of ten. It's uh, it's such a great film. I can't recommend highly enough. If you're a fan of genre films, if you're a fan of gangster films, if you're a fan of foreign films, or just excellent films in general that you pick this film up because i mean it's 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 a shame that it doesn't get the credit that a lot of other south korean stuff does yet and then that's no disrespect to park chanwook i love park chanwook um but uh, this film really needs to be mentioned alongside those and i mean everything about it's first class even the the actress in it she almost looks like a jian uh jian jian lee which is uh she's a korean actress she looks sort of like her for those of you familiar with her but a little bit more cute as opposed to pretty. But right. again, uh, guys, I can't recommend you pick up this film enough. I we actually went onto Amazon to see if it was available, so you guys could buy it. And it's, I mean, ten bucks, guys. Go out and get it. You won't be disappointed with this film. I totally agree with that. It is well worth ten bucks. Uh, I would pay twenty for it easily. It is definitely a must own for any uh, DVD aficionado or film buff. Oh yeah. All right, so that is A Bittersweet Life, two eight-and-a-halves. Uh, very mutual agreement on that one, so that's probably the first and maybe maybe the last time. Who knows? <laughs> okay, so we will take our last break, and then we'll come back with some uh, feedback from everybody. You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema with Big Willie and the Samurai. Some uh, Australian uh, cock rock there from a band called Airborne. <laughs> Good stuff. Hopefully, uh, Scorn, if you're out there and you're listening, hopefully you'll call in at some point. Maybe you, maybe you like Airborne. I don't know. I might be setting myself up for some ridicule here. Yeah, come on, Scorny. I mean, we're feeling a little left out here. Don't you have any love for the gentleman? Come on. <laughs> Waiting for the Scorn. All right. So we had some feedback. Um, let me uh, grab the emails first here. I'll go over these emails. Uh, the first one is from the uh, doc. And, of course, you remember, guys, you can't email us at midnightcinema@gmail.com. It's M-I-D-N-I-T-E, cinema at gmail.com. We would appreciate the emails, anything we can get. All right, so the doc says, uh, hey, guys, great start to the podcast. I'm, a prou- I'm proud to say that I am hooked as one of the original members of the Gentleman's Club. I like that. I have a question for you, though. I was curious when you said that They Call Me Trendy was rated G. I'm always looking for genre movies that I can watch with my kids. I have two girls aged five and nine. 
I already have Godzilla movies in the Netflix queue, but a Western could be cool. Is Trinity this kind of movie that would keep kids from getting bored, or is it mostly adult themes? Uh, anyway, terrific start, and I look forward to the next show. Thanks, Doc. We appreciate that. Uh, I don't know, Will. I'm going to kick it over to you, buddy. What do you think? Do you think Trinity is the right kind of film for kids, or do you recommend? Um, well, yeah, that's sort of an interesting question that I don't know if we're going to be able to give, or at least I'm not going to be able to give a definitive answer to. But before I get into that, again, I want to thank everyone for their voicemails, for their emails. It really means a lot to us. And all of all the words of encouragement we've received from everyone. I know, you know, my dad, he, you know, he listened to the show, he voted for us and wrote a comment and stuff. So everyone, I mean, it really means a lot to us. And, you know, when you, you do a show like this, it's important that people are satisfied with it. And again, uh, thanks a lot, guys. I, we really appreciate it. But getting back to Trinity for a moment, you know, it's kind of weird because I know myself, I didn't get into Westerns until I became a man, in a sense. And... The, f- the themes explored in Westerns resonated more with me. Um, right. is, it, is it suitable for a child to watch? I think it is for the most part. I mean, there's no blood. Like I said in the last episode, the gunplay and the, the dead bodies are sort of cut away from that very quickly. Yes, the um, violence is very cartoon. There's not a splatter or anything like that. No, no, there's definitely not. Now, because they're both little girls, I mean, I don't know what else they've watched up until this point. You know, because like I said, westerns are sort of a man's film for the most part. I, I would say it's it's suitable for them, depending on what they've watched. I mean, if they've been watching Hannah Montana or you know whatever little girls watch, I'm hate to admit I'm not all that up on that. I think um, I think Bill might watch that actually. So you're right; yeah, some little yeah, girls do love it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> if that's all they've watched, maybe this is a little more for them. But if you've been slowly introducing them to genre stuff, I don't think you have anything to lose by showing them. It's just, I guess, the question is whether or not they. Uh, respond to the the Western themes of it, and again, it's not like a three hour movie like a Sergio Leone epic. But you know, if it's not something they're into, it may not be what they're into. But yeah, is it suitable? Yes. Is it what they're going to be into? I guess only time will tell, and, and hopefully they like it. Yeah, Doc. My my two cents on that is, uh, and that's a good point you make there, Willie. My my two cents on that is, there's nothing in there that's going to harm them as far as uh, you know their development into their older years. Uh, it's not that kind of a movie. It's not ultra violent. Uh, it's comedic in, in certain senses and stuff, and maybe young kids would... I, I mean, I saw it as a young kid, and I thought it was quite funny as a young kid because of some of the cartoon violence and stuff like that. Really, the real question is here, I don't know if a five- and a nine-year-old little girl would be into a spaghetti western or not. I really just don't know. The movie is kind of slow-paced a little bit. I didn't think anything was wasted in it, but it is a little slow-paced, and nowadays people tend to like their movies a little faster. So, really, I think I don't think there's anything in there that can harm them. Uh, I'd probably give it a watch first and then, you know, decide yourself. But I would be curious to see if they like it. So if you do show it to them, please let us know. Uh, because I would be curious to see if a five- and nine-year-old would, uh, you know, female would dig it. I would I would hope they would, though. I know I dug it quite a bit when I was a kid. So I'd hope so, too. I mean, sorry to cut you off just quickly. I'm going to be having kids soon. And I know just like the doc, I'm starting to wonder already what stuff genre-related can I show them. So right. this will be right. an interesting litmus test. Yes, yes. I would be curious to see the outcome of that. Okay, so... I got another email here from uh, the Naked Eskimo, who uh, has one of the better online handles out there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. All right. Now, this is kind of a long one, but I'm going to read the whole thing. We didn't edit out anything. I don't believe in that. So hopefully there's nothing in here that uh, well, it looks like everything's fine. Okay. Hey, guys. Naked Eskimo here. Highly enjoyed the first show. Much like Cinema Diabolica, y'all covered. Oh, I love how you used y'all. That's something we use down here. Y'all covered two movies I'd, never, I'd neither seen nor heard of. I have been a big fan of both of you guys in voicemail form for a while, so it stands to reason I would like a podcast featuring both of you. I did. 
I like the format as well. Each of you picking one movie is a great idea. I'm not sure if this is what OTC and CD do, but I didn't think it was. Should lend itself to both of you having an equal voice in every episode, I think. Kudos. For next week, Alligator. Honestly, one of my all-time favorite big crazy animal films, and up until Rogue came out, was probably my favorite film in the Jaws genre that wasn't actually Jaws. Robert Forster is awesome, and the animal rights subplots uh, were very nicely delivered. I went back, watched it a couple years ago, and the scene with the dogs in the test lab absolutely floored me. The director did some amazing things with the budget he had, I thought, and I thought, and a lot of uh, very creative things with scale models to make the, prior, make the gator look bigger than it was, similar to what Spielberg did with the shark cage scenes in Jaws, I suppose. Uh, great first episode, guys. Looking forward to more great things, and don't sweat the runtime. An hour is, to me, the sweet spot for a show like this. Any more and it drags, any less and it feels rushed. Naked Esmo, and then, of course he adds on here, P.S., play some hardcore. I think that was just a little jab at Will there, so... <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm not the biggest fan for those of you that um listen to the other shows. Not to say I don't like hard music. I just find oh la, 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 to be a little beyond what I like. But hey, I mean everyone's different, so Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, Eskimo brings up some good points. I mean, basically his alligator, he agrees with us and uh, you know, the animal subplots and everything else. And he also agrees that, you know, Louis Teague did a great job with the uh, the alligator scenes, you know, similar to what Spielberg did and stuff. So, that's really great and uh I'm, I'm glad that we might have turned him on to a couple movies he hadn't seen in uh, in Trinity and uh, and uh, what was the other film we covered? I can't even remember off the top of my head. Major Charles Rain has come <laughs> home to war. <laughs> I, oh, you guys, for, for a little behind the curtain look, we talk about so many movies we want to cover. I tend to forget sometimes what we're covering or what we are going to cover, and uh, it's just it's a lot of information to remember. Plus, producing the show and everything else, so not easy to remember. But uh, hopefully, you know, you'll like. Uh, Trinity and uh, Rolling Thunder, if you get a chance to see them there, Eskimo. Uh, I recommend both. I uh, recommend Trinity a little bit more than Thunder, but hey, you know, to each their own. Yeah, let us know what you think once you check them out. I'd be curious to hear that. And uh, yep. thanks again, uh, Eskimo, for the kind words. And I can promise you, I am open to playing more hardcore, because if that's what the people want, that's what we will give. <laughs> we will give them the hardcore. Uh, guys, I, I happen to be a hardcore fan like Bill and uh, like F-13, so uh, it's just uh, I don't play a lot of it because they play a lot of it and stuff. I try to mix it up quite a bit with uh, some crazy music and stuff, and uh, soon Will will be doing the same thing, and he'll be putting some stuff in there, but you, you'll probably hear some hardcore from time to time, uh, along with some more cock rock. <laughs> yep. All right, so we got some voicemails. I'm going to play the first one here. Give me a sec. Go. This person called in. Hey, it's the Hat. Welcome to the podcast arena. Just listened to your first show. I like it a lot. Uh, sounds great. Good reviews. I definitely w- will be listening in the future, so make it easy. I'll see you. Peace. And good luck. Yeah, that was the, uh, the Hat, the one and only. Uh, we have arrived if the head is listening to our show. So that that's the way I feel because the head is the man. So oh, yeah, I would love head. to hear a po- I would love to hear a podcast with that guy. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. I think the head's always on point. No, he's all killer, no filler. Yeah, you know, exactly. I like what he has to say. He cuts to the chase, says what he has to say, and I think you you would maybe know better than I, I think that was our first ever voice. Well, in terms of outside of our. Um, colleagues was he not our first ever voicemail yes yes he was the uh, first one that called in for episode one and everything else outside of our colleagues which uh, we'll get to here in a second one of our colleagues called in speaking again. of colleagues 
Yeah, but thanks for the voicemail hit. And speaking of colleagues, here we go. So I was all set to call in a nice, wonderful little voicemail congratulating you on the first episode. But then I noticed that every single fucking posting on uh, our forums and, you know, whatever forums everywhere, and on your Libsyn page, uh, everything you advertise, nothing has the phone number anywhere. You might want to think about getting that out there for people to call you. The only way I was able to do this was to look in my Skype's history. So, uh, yeah, work on, um, on, on show notes and uh, posting the phone number and various websites in that. Um, I, I don't even have anything else to say after that. Um, work on that, fellas. Okay? Okay, thanks. Appreciate it. All right. Good old F-13. Is that, is that who it was? Because, you know, that caller didn't leave a name. That, that mystery caller didn't oh, mention yeah. who it was. Yeah, of all things, you know, one of the people that complains about people calling in and not saying their names, uh, he didn't call and leave their names. I guess he just thinks he's uh, he's that popular. So, well, it is what it is. But, uh, yeah, I take his criticism. Uh, I take it well, actually. Uh, F-13, uh, for anybody who doesn't know, he's kind of like the, uh, for me anyway, and maybe Bill might agree with this, he's kind of like the Jedi Master of the uh, podcasting community for uh, for me personally, so... I go to him for all my problems and everything else. He's a great guy and everything. I can't say enough about him, and we appreciate him calling in again. Oh yeah, uh, definitely. And and I yeah, certainly. I mean, he is. He really knows the stuff. He knows. He knows the business. Uh, and anything we can sort of glean from him is much appreciated. But in our defense, on our Facebook page, which can be found if you go to Facebook under the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, um, and it's also on our signature on the Pop Syndicate forums, as well as on our Libsyn page, I believe. But other than that, yeah, I guess we should pump it a well, little Well, actually, more. I added it to the Libsyn page after I got that voicemail and uh, was uh, berated. So uh, <laughs> I well, added there it to you the go. Libsyn page. It's not on the MySpace page yet. I got to put it on there, but uh, we'll get it on there. Yeah, thanks again, F. <laughs> yeah, thanks, F13. <laughs> All right, and then we got a voicemail from this gentleman. Hello, hello. It's Matt Suzaka here. Uh, first voicemail for you guys. I'm uh, really excited you guys got the show off the ground finally. Um, I must say it sounded really good. I was impressed, um, especially for uh, such an early show. And uh, I didn't hear any technical difficulties or anything, so nice job with that, guys, really. Um, another thing is, uh, you guys actually both sound really good. I've heard your voices plenty of times on voicemails for other podcasts, but, uh, you know, it's good to hear you guys speaking about movies and shit and actually getting to get your opinions out there because you guys definitely, uh, definitely know what you're talking about and you guys both sound really good together and you kind of sound almost good enough to start making out at any minute now. It's that Southern drawl and that fucking Canadian bacon. Oh, <laughs> so hot. But, uh, you know, I'm just sitting here. It's like fucking 1230. And I'm still at fucking work, and I'm just about to leave, and I fucking hate my horrendous job. But uh, I hope you guys can get an episode up every week, because that would be fucking definitely sweet. And um, I don't know, man. I'm definitely looking forward to what you guys are going to be doing next and in the future. I'd also, I think it'd be great if you guys maybe did uh, maybe like a little introduction for your guy, for yourselves, for uh, maybe people who don't know you guys from either the forums or from maybe the other shows, like in case people pop in and they're like, oh, a new podcast, let me check it out. Maybe you guys did like a little introduction, said like, you know, like why you started doing podcasting, you know, the films that you're really into and shit, which is pretty obvious to someone like me, but, you know, maybe not everyone else knows that kind of thing. But, uh, I don't know, I got a science infection and I'm still at work and I hate my life right now, but you know what? I love you guys. And I'm fucking psyched that you guys have a show, and I hope you guys do an episode every week. That's all I got. I will stop talking. Later, guys. All right. There is the one and only Matt Suzaka. <laughs> you got anything to add to that uh, voicemail there, Will? Uh, yeah, just thanks again, Matt Suzaka. Always nice to hear that uh, sexy Northeastern American <laughs> voice. 
Um, in terms of us introducing ourselves, just for those of you that don't know, we actually recorded well over two hours for our first episode. And inevitably, you know, we ran long. And much to the samurai's credit, he did a Sally Menke-like job with editing that thing down to a much more manageable time. So we had had a big introduction in terms of our who we are and what we're about and why we want to do the show and so forth. And I'm sure at some point we'll get to that uh, when we've tightened things up to the point where we feel comfortable we can kind of veer off for a few minutes. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, but th- thanks again. And uh, look, hopefully you, you keep enjoying the show, Matsuzaka. Yeah, yeah, hopefully you do. And, uh, you know, I was listening to the uh, Outside the Cinema show and, you know, Ryan says he don't like our bacon and everything else. But I would argue that Ryan does like Big Willie's bacon. So we're, we're okay there. So uh, I think, you know, Ryan always says he don't like bacon, but trust me, he does like Big Willie's bacon. That's a little jab at Ryan out there who says we were copying his show. But then again, he won't ever listen to this. So it's going to be relayed <laughs> through our good chum, Bill, to Ryan. Probably. Hopefully Bill will cut this out and uh, put it into his show, and uh, Ryan will have uh, some things to say about that. Oh, yeah. All right, so before I play the outro music, because uh, that's what we normally do here, and I hate to announce it, but I'm going to go ahead and uh, tell tell everybody what films we'll be covering next week. I'll tell my pick first, and then I'll let you tell uh, your pick and everything else. But my pick is the uh, it's the uh, Brian Bosworth classic, Stone Cold. Uh <laughs> This uh, will either alienate listeners or make them appreciate us even more, but uh, Brian Bosworth, former NFL football player, made an action movie in about 1989, 1990. I think it came out in 91, and uh, I'm looking forward to uh, I think, uh, Will, you've never seen it, right? No, actually, I, I never have. Uh, I've always oh, wanted to, but again, this is one of those instances where doing a show is beneficial to kind of push it forward for me. Well, we'll see how beneficial it is after you see the film, but it... I like it quite a bit, and I'm hoping Will will as well. Okay, you want to tell them what your film choice is? Yeah, I certainly do. Um, one more thing, though. I'm Speaking of mullets, there's a very extreme mullet in, in uh, Stone Cold that I'm looking oh, forward man. to seeing sort of flowing in the wind. But, there's a um, lot of bad hair in Stone Cold, trust me. Oh, yeah. Yeah, certainly. Uh, my film is uh, a little film that I was exposed to through um, a very knowledgeable gentleman on the uh, Pop Syndicate forums by the name of Hans. He had posted a trailer for something by the name of Raiders of Atlantis, or <laughs> a.k.a. Atlantis Interceptors, and this film looked legendary. I had to track it down. So I did track it down, and it's sort of a post-apocalyptic Italian knockoff film directed by Ruggiero Diodato, and uh, I think you all are, are really going to like it. It's, uh, it's a lot of fun. Um, yeah, and I think it's, I'm really curious to see what you have to think about it, Samurai, because I've been telling you about it for a while, how awesome it is. Yes, and I have actually never seen it. I uh, did see the trailer that Hans posted and thought, well, i got to see this at some point. I know it's not real easy to find, but uh, I believe you can get it on a Grindhouse collection, uh, Volume 2, I believe. So That's right. Uh, it's in the Netflix if anybody wants to. Uh, well, actually, yeah, yeah, it's fine. You can go ahead and rent it because by the time you hear this, I'll have already rented it. So <laughs> that's okay. All right, so outro music, please. All right, so another episode has come and gone. We got number two under our belts. Feels good? Oh, definitely. You know, this one, it just feels so much more comfortable now. We're not uh, we're not as nervous. Things are flowing a little better. It, it does feel good to have this. <laughs> yeah, and it's shorter. Uh, as of recording this, it's, it's much shorter. I'm not going to tell you the length because I'll probably have to edit some things out, guys, but uh, it is much shorter than the last time around, trust me. All right, so I just want to go over a couple of people that uh, we encourage you to listen to. Uh, check out Big Red Podcast, BigRedPodcast.com. Very good show. Make sure you check out Cinema Diabolica at CinemaDiabolica.com. 
the kings of the uh, TV film podcast world right now. Uh, OTC.com, at OutsideTheCinema.com, or whatever you want to say. You know, it, outside the cinema, basically. They're basically the princes of uh, the podcast world, and, and we must be just the uh, little bitches coming behind them, but that's okay. Uh, destroy the Brain, DestroyTheBrainOnline.com, uh, Night of Living Podcast, NLTLP.com, uh, Chinstroker vs. Punter, Chinstroker vs. Punter.Podomatic.com, Mondo, Mondo Movie, the uh, Mondo Movie guys, MondoMovie.com, and uh, Show Show, ShowShow.Podomatic.com. Uh, again, you can reach us at voicemail at uh, 206-666-5207. Uh, emails to midnightcinema at gmail.com. It's midnight, M-I-D-N-I-T-E, cinema at gmail.com. Also, make sure to go over to our MySpace. It's uh, myspace.com slash the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Friend us over there. The Facebook page, the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Join the group over there. Uh, the Lipson page, which is basically our home website right now, uh, ggtmc.lipsyn.com uh, We are working on a website but it'll be a long time coming guys I can tell you that right now and uh, also uh, to, make, uh, to, to add a little something else we will be on iTunes shortly it does take a little while for to get us up on iTunes so if some of you guys out there subscribe with iTunes and things like that we'll be up there at some point uh, so that'll be good so that's about all I got uh, again it's Raiders of Atlantis and uh, uh, Stone Cold next week Will is there anything you'd like to add? Um, as the music ends on me again, uh, <laughs> not much. I just, again, just echoing everything you said, check out all those shows. I mean, they're all great shows that you and I have listened to for a long time and, you know, we're really happy to do our little part to support them. 